Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Fuji Love Podcast. This is the show all about the Fujifilm camera system and the photographers who love to use them. I'm Mark Sadowski, and I want to wish everybody a happy new year. I hope everybody has been safe. Uh, I can't stress that enough with uh, the stuff that I'm hearing in the news, but uh, I hope everybody is safe, healthy, and ready to do some photography because uh, this is not only the start of a brand new year, this is also the 10-year anniversary of the Fujifilm X-Mount system. My goodness, there's a lot of articles out there that are uh, videos out there that are just full of cool photography. And I hope that you're not only checking this out, but doing some cool photography of your own. This show, like all other shows, it's brought to you by Fuji Love Magazine. For the latest and greatest in all things Fujifilm X-Series and GFX related, head on over to fujilove.com. Again, you're going to see some great interviews, you're going to see some great articles, and some great photography. It's a great way to kick in the new year. Subscribe today. My guest this week is David Julian. David not only is an amazing photographer uh, of many different genres, he is a Fujifilm X creator, an illustrator, and Dave, you have like one of the coolest pasts. Uh, <laughs> prior to uh, finding your 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 Zen way into photography, you were uh, working for. HBO and Warner Brothers Music. Yeah. Um, Dave, it's awesome to have you on the show, man. Well, thank you, Mark, for inviting me. This is really something I've wanted to do for a while and just hadn't reached out and said, hey, man, let's meet, you know? So but thank you, you have that. worked – I was sorry to cut you off. Uh, yeah. Excited because I, I read your previous article that you contributed to uh, the Fujilove magazine side. Uh, definitely. Um, and, and it's been too long since I um, have contributed, and I really mean to do something about that. But I've contributed to that. I was very excited by what Tomas was doing, yeah, and, uh, what he continues to do. Um, but also, I've been involved um, with um, Valerie Jardin's project, uh, Hit the Streets, uh, yep. uh, seven or eight times. And done a couple of other podcasts. So I love the medium. I was going to start my own until I discovered yours and several others and said, well, you know what? <laughs> Maybe I'll just keep <laughs> doing what I'm doing. Cause, um, but I think it's a great medium. Um, I love podcasts and I assign them to all of my university students because you can be doing something else and you can be learning and interacting um, with other people in your field. And I think that's one of the best things about it. Totally. And it's now, I mean, as of uh, the, the last few years, pretty much become a mainstream mm -hmm. uh, source of uh, entertainment, learning. Uh, it, it's great. And, the, and it's totally, I mean, for the time being, democratized. Anybody can, anybody <laughs> can start one. Yes, yes, you can. But thank, thankfully, you are the one doing this one, so I don't have to do it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'd love to love to talk about anything you want to regarding photography and what I relate to photography, which is everything I do visually has something to do with a camera these days. Um, but also just the way I fell into um, what 
many people have called falling in love with Fujifilm. And um, I'm one of those people who it changed my entire way of photography. So let's start with that. Um, oh, sure. What, let's start with what you're currently using right now. Um, I currently shoot with an X-T4 and an X-T3. And that's all I have currently. I recently had a 100F and sold that. And I had an X-T30, which is a fantastic little camera. But I decided to pare down um, and go for two two of the um, larger bodies. So that's yeah. what I've got now. And a bunch of lenses. I have too much glass. You know, it's hard to know what to pack when I go away because I have too much glass. Oh, my gosh. Sometimes it's it's it, – too much glass or the opposite is not enough glass uh, yeah. depending on yeah. what you're in or what you're trying to photograph. Well, it's not, it's not an easy thing to pare down with Fujifilm because they make so many different lenses that apply to different functions or different ways that I photograph. And yep. uh, fortunately they're all very affordable and they're all brilliantly well-made and so it's not that hard a decision. I don't have to go online and look up the specs and look up the pixel peeper dis- discussions on on um, websites about them. I just know they're going to perform, and all I have to do is choose the focal length and whether I want a fast or not so fast lens and compact or not, and it's going to work for me. That's do you have a favorite glass? Um, oh, boy. I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> Dude, I do. Um, the 16 1.4 is absolutely my favorite lens ever and i was a 24 millimeter shooter when i had full frame slrs and so this is just an extension of that that same look um but it's also brilliantly built and i love the clutch on it because i i go in and out of manual focus with it frequently and yeah uh, it's one of the things that's so dear to me about that lens is that it's got a very close focusing range so i can get I can do something that's not quite a macro, but I can feature something very close to the lens, such as a starfish, which I was recently shooting, and then also see the background. What's the environment that that creature lives in, and what's the weather look like? Are there people in the background? So I love that storytelling, um, that focal length for storytelling with my particular style. Have you tried using the new 18 millimeter? I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) I have to be careful about going near these things, you know. (laughs) <laughs> totally. <laughs> I never got the chance to use the 16 millimeter, but the 18 millimeter oh, yeah. is uh is a fantastic lens. I but bet. I I've heard people who have used both kind of bounce between mm-hmm. which one is ideal for them depending on what kind of mm-hmm. work they're doing. Um certainly. Um, you know, I'm excited to see that lens and I will eventually have a chance to, um, and I have several other pieces of glass that I'm super fond of. I love the 10 to 24. That was my first Fujifilm lens that with the 18 to 55, what they call the kit lens, but it's so much better performer than a kit lens. It really, yeah. isn't, it really isn't a kit lens. They just happen to sell it attached to their cameras, um, <laughs> as an option. But, um, I actually still use that that lens a lot. I'm on my third or fourth. <laughs> I was clumsy at one point and you know, what can I say? Um, but, um, the 10 to 24 is an absolutely amazing lens for the way I see and the way I work in the street. Um, so that's been a, that's been a super favorite too. Um, it was, it's a little slow. So that's why I like the faster primes as well. Yeah. But what a great performer. Um, I'm looking forward to getting the newer version of it. That's, uh, um, 
the the WR, the weather resistant version, um, because I beat my lenses up a little bit. I mean, I take care of them the way a dentist would take care of his tools, but I go to environments that beat on my equipment a bit. So yeah, uh, the WR lenses are the way to go for me. That's the two point eight version, right? Uh, of the ten to twenty four. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were no. talking about the sixteen again. Yeah, no, that's another. That's another sweetheart. <clears throat> um, so, so I have the fi- the the uh, fifty to one forty. That's a favorite, um, and I've heard many of the people who speak on your show talk about that too. It's quite a beautiful lens, and I like the um, the compacts, the compact uh, weather resistant uh, lenses with aperture rings. Those are those are just gorgeous. The uh, I have the sixteen, the twenty three, and the fifty. Um, nice. Yeah. So, yeah, I could talk all day about Fuji equipment, Fujifilm equipment, because it it really did alter the way I became enamored with my photography um, interests. And I can touch a little bit about how that happened. Yeah. Um, so what were you using before you uh, went into Fuji and what was the camera that um, nailed it for you? Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, the very first time I used a digital camera was in 2003 when I had a trip coming up to Portugal and I decided to try this out and it was a Fujifilm S2 Oh, now you're talking my time. Yeah, man. A hybrid Nikon Fujifilm product. And um, I was shooting Nikon up until then. So I had some glass. And that was the perfect segue. And I I can tell you that my mind was blown when I started to work. And this is my first time in Europe, believe it or not. And when I started to go into different lighting conditions and could switch the ISO dial, I was just unbelievably turned on to the idea of digital right then and there. I mean, yeah. never mind the glass, never mind anything else. The fact that I could work in that variably without carrying a backpack full of film was just such a game changer. And there was one other thing about that camera that was mind blowing to me. You could speak into the back of it after you made a picture and it would record a little AIFF file so that you could literally dictate what you just photographed, talk to the people you just photographed I even photographed someone's parrot one time and the parrot was talking to me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. I didn't know that camera had that capability. It did, but guess what? So the new Fujifilm cameras. Nice. Very very few people know that you have an audio feature on these during playback. (laughs) (laughs) I like what? Yeah. So it's a wonderful feature and I use it instead of taking notes when I want to just say, you know, here I am at Borobudur and, in Java and I'm photographing and I'm about to photograph these monks. It's just kind of like a dialogue and it gives me some context when I'm starting to put together. Uh, oh, I see what you're talking project. about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've never used mine for note taking that, that, that is uh, something that I'm going to have to try. Yeah. I'm that sure a couple cool. of your listeners will be like yanking their Fujifilm cameras off the shelf and going like, where is that feature? Look it up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but uh, man, back in the day, uh, my my first Fujifilm camera was the S seven thousand, which was oh. kind of Fujifilm's version of the Canon PowerShot, and probably mm-hmm. one of the first mirrorless lenses, technically. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, yeah. Those those were the days. Um, so after the S2, I went, I went um, back to Canon, actually. Um, what happened is at the time, I would desperately wanted to stay Nikon, but Nikon did not build a full-frame 
digital camera. They were going to stay on the APS sensor. And I deemed it so important that I needed to have full frame that I bypassed Nikon and went to Canon. So you went for the 5D? I went for the 5D, and then I went for the 5D2, and then the 5D3, and a whole pile of black and white glass. I call it white glass because of their telephotos. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and, you know, and then I kept seeing these small, beautiful, retro-style Fujifilm cameras at uh, the main media workshops where I've been teaching for a billion years, and, and also at Santa Fe workshops, some of the... Um, some of the instructors and several of the uh, participant students were bringing in um, everything from the X100 to the X-Pro1 or the X-T1. And I was just rubbernecking every time I saw one of those things. So um, I got invited to do a project in Cuba in 2014 in the fall of uh, that year. And I decided, okay, um, I'm going to just sell everything off and buy my first mirrorless camera. And I, I, um, I rented a, uh, a Sony Alpha, I guess it was the one or the Alpha 7. I can't recall what it was at the yeah. time. It was the, it was the <clears throat> X-T1 uh, for Sony. And I also rented um, yep. something else. I think it might have been a Panasonic. And after handling them and looking at the way my ergonomics felt to me and going through menus and dealing with the fact that um, – you know, I had to kind of get used to a lot of different things moving up to mirrorless. The Fujifilm camera won my heart for a couple of reasons. And one of them was the sound it made. It was not clunky. And it was quiet enough that when I put it on the um, the silent mode, the electronic shutter, I could film anywhere. And yeah. photograph anywhere, which I did. I took advantage of that quite a bit. Um, but what really won my heart, which is what wins a lot of people's hearts, is the manual dials that control the things that I was already familiar with from having SLR cameras. Right. You know, my Nikons, my knicker mats, and all of that. Um, so so suddenly my brain was reaching back to the past going, you know these features, you know how to turn them just exactly at the time you need to, and you're not going to be looking at numbers and buttons. Um, for the most part. And so that was a turn on and I went and purchased um, a kit, uh, a Fuji, uh, Fujifilm uh, X-T1 kit. And, and then it got delayed in shipping and it, my, my flight was going to be leaving in two days uh. to Miami to go to Cuba. And I was like, this is not good. And uh, the, the FedEx guy showed up at my door three hours before I left. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, that's how close it was. And and I literally unpacked it. I just grabbed the gear, shoved it in my camera bag, prayed that there was at least a little bit of current in the batteries so that I could at least learn the camera on the flight. And I did, and it did. And um, that was it. I hit the ground running um, in Havana the very first day with that camera. And it was natural. It felt natural. So um, that's amazing. I love it. That is a great feel. Too. It's absolutely true. And so many people here share it. And, um, you know, I think that maybe the engineers actually put a pheromone in the, in the rubber grip so that you become in love with the camera. <laughs> oh, without a doubt. <laughs> like a love pheromone or something. Because um, in the Fujifilm gift, uh, gift shop, uh, when we yeah, there the campus, they actually have that bottled, uh, <laughs> as a, uh, you know, you can use it as a cologne. Oh, um, God, I don't think so. Uh, it's really true, though. Um, you know, I, even if Fujifilm and I were not um, involved on a professional level, I would just 
talk about their equipment this way because it changed the way I felt about using a camera. Suddenly, as I was photographing people who I didn't know and I wasn't that good at my Spanish, I wasn't behind something that hid my face. They could see yeah. me, we could still speak, and I felt that everything fit. And not to mention the fact that I was carrying a pretty full kit next to my body rather than behind me in a pack. Um, so it, it worked for me. I'm not a big guy, so the agility that I gained from having that was also very important. Um, but mostly it was how I, how I was on the street, a lower profile. Um, I bought black gear, not silver gear, because it's quieter looking, and I didn't get asked as many questions <laughs> from people like, what is that? Yeah. And so. – with it being small enough, you know, it, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't anything like the, the, the large glass that people come with, with the red rings. And yes, it's true. I was stealth and I was, I needed to be because I was literally learning street photography that trip. Um, I'd really not practiced it very much before, but that's such a wonderful place, which is why I go every year and I take photographers as I will at the end of this year. Um, but what I meant, wanted to mention to you is that um, uh, from that camera on, I just kept revising my kit whenever they came out with new technology and dedicated myself to being up to date as much as I could be. Um, and it's just been a wonderful process to watch the technology grow and the Kaizen philosophy and, and introducing um, firmware updates that literally give you new features on the camera you already own. That's such, yeah. a, it's such a generous and beautiful way of being a company because that's what we need. We don't want to buy a new camera every nine months. It's just, it's insane. So now you're with the, the XT three and the XT four, right? True. Um, how, how have you seen uh, – I mean, this is going to be kind of like a, a little bit of a softball because most people know how it, the camera has changed. But how has it improved for you uh, personally in your line of work? And what would you like to see in future iterations? Mm. Oh, boy. Okay. This is a good question. Um, I I really love the IBIS feature that they put into the uh, – XH1 and the Fujifilm X-T4. Yeah. The only ones I'm familiar with personally. And that's I think those are the only feature. ones that have them. Yeah. I, I was very jealous of the Sony people who had IBIS and um, because I have some old lenses and some manual lenses I like to slap on the body. Yeah. But for me, it really was quite prominently obvious that I could hand hold at much slower speeds with accurate photography. So I love IBIS, but I don't use it all the time. I just yep. don't need to. Um, but that's a great feature. And um, I love the uh, LCD, the folding LCD on the X-T3 a little bit more than the articulated swing out on the X-T4. So that's a camera I'll never, I'll never get rid of <laughs> and, unless they, unless the X-T5 has that screen. Um but uh, that's just the only thing that that I would really um, say I'd love to see in the XT5. But so I'm curious um, mm -hmm. because every everybody has a, a different opinion about the about the screens, and I think that's <laughs> it, it's it's rather uh, amazing that the XT3 and XT4 are are still both side by side in production, yeah. uh, which, which is a benefit to Fujifilm at, at the moment, but uh, mm -hmm. what, what is it about the XT3s 
uh, articulating screen or like well, just how has that been better uh, at the 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 fold out flippy screen oh that's really easy to speak to um, when I photograph on the street sometimes I will introduce myself to somebody and we will get into a conversation and then I will ask if I can photograph when I'm doing that I rarely have the camera up to my eye it's yeah. just below me and I'm chimping on that LCD with it folded up so that I can see into it. And so that's something I really enjoy is it's also keeps the low profile of the camera. And I have a, I use some um, peak straps. And so the, the, the swing out LCD on the X-T4 kind of interrupts the strap and it's something that's hanging off the side of the camera. So I don't, I can't use it for that style. Um, but yeah. Both bodies on me when I'm traveling and usually when I'm out for the day, so I can always switch into whatever camera is going to do the best. If I go into really low light, I'm going to use the X-T4 because I get that extra, um, you know, that extra speed or that extra lower ISO by, by um, controlling um, my movement with IBIS. Yep. I'm curious. I, w- I would be curious to see if the X-T5 uh, will have – uh, either the the normal flip screen like on the XT3, mm-hmm. or if they're going to go the same route as the XE4, which has the pretty much the, the it just folds completely upwards and mm-hmm. does a somersault. Uh, well, I want it to go vertical as well, and that's what the XT3 does beautifully. Is it, it also works when I'm on my tripod and I'm doing verticals, and I'm I'm on a low. You know, I'm, I'm like got my tray my tripod near the ground, and I want to just flip up um, that screen vertically. So that's going to be important for me to see. Um, but you know, aside from all of that, um, I also f- was going to tell you that another thing that was a game changer for me when I moved into that um, the the mirrorless community and and the Fujifilm camera um, technology was to see the world in black and white. That was a giant game changer. Um, I had photographed with black and white films during most of my photographic interests life, um, shooting medium format. In fact, the, one of my first cameras was a Fuji film, um, uh, 617, the big panoramic. Yes. Okay. And so, um, that was a really important process. Also the six, nine and the six, seven, uh, the little range finders. And so the fact that I could now use a camera that let me see the world in black and white was huge, just huge. And so that's what I switch it to. I switch it to the Acros modes when I'm shooting on the street um, for the most part. So I record a fine JPEG in black and white and I record the, um, you know, of course the raw is going to be color based, but it'll have a preview that's turned black and white. And that's, yeah. the, way, that's the way I shoot pretty much. Um, I switch to color when I'm shooting things that have to be about color. So you're primarily doing the, the, the raw, uh, processing for your photography and, uh, and JPEG is strictly black and white just for the, no, what what benefit does that give you just seeing everything in black and white? Well, we can't normally see in black and white as humans, but not normally. So no. So, (laughs) But, but since I photographed black and white emulsions for a long time, I never liked that schism, that, that shift between seeing one thing and getting another. I really loved the idea that I wanted to see in black and white. And um, 
of course, the advantage we have is we can turn to the different black and white modes or simulations and actually simulate the effect of having the filters that used to be that we used to use on panchromatic film. Um, you know, we used to filter the light coming in with a color such as a red filter or a green filter or a yellow filter. And now we have filtered uh, simulations too, right? We have Atmos, yeah. YG, and uh, what is it? YG and... Hmm. Having a break. Red, green, blue. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think it's blue, um, but I'm having a moment of not remembering the exact way I do it um, because I have them all kind of programmed into my custom modes. Yeah, but yeah, it's uh, it's quite profound how those affect the way the images come out. Plus, I'm a very, very um, well. I'm a very avid uh, Lightroom and Photoshop user and have been f since their inception pretty much. So I also do a lot to my images when I convert them to black and white. So sometimes I'll use the simulated black and whites um, and sometimes I'll do my own conversions using those applications or um, Silver Effects Pro, which is an unbelievable tool to use to go to black and white from color. So yeah. I, end, I end up, I end up keeping color versions of everything. I'll like, I'll in Lightroom, I'll even make a virtual copy and, and, and use it in color. So I just like to have both. And, um, I like to hand tune the way color turns into black and white. So let's kind of go into like your Photoshop work and, and Lightroom. Um, because, Again, not only are you an amazing photographer, your, your illustrations and um, concept work are really, really imaginative. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> photo illustrations in particular, uh, you have um, you know a combination of people and uh, mechanical mm -hmm. <laughs> gears and, and other kinds of uh, things that would make uh, somebody from Burning Man want to make a costume out of it. Oh, completely. Um, yeah, my collections are <laughs> uh, my collections are mostly uh, things about old technology and nature and the intersection. When I was a very young person and I was drawing a lot, um, I used to actually make drawings about the intersection of machines and, and humans or mis machines and animals. And, steampunk is the word I was yeah, just trying to look Yeah, for. yeah, yeah. I was, so my collections are pre-steampunk, but they're the things that steampunk people would kill to get their hands on. Yes. Glass domes and giant gears and all kinds of steam fittings and all of those meters from old, um, old radar machines uh, from World War II. But anyway, those, those are, those are just sort of the elements that I use to build my, um, my illustrations, my photo illustrations. So I use the camera in those cases to record the raw materials that I will then use in Photoshop in order to create my, my photo illustrations composites. I call them stories because all of them tell a story yes. in multiple images. And that's one of the things I love to teach. Uh, and I, I, I teach it privately here out of Seattle. Um, and I also teach it at the main workshops. Um, and that's that's about Photoshop montage and telling stories through Photoshop montage. So I invite photographers who normally wouldn't be in that arena to experiment and see what it is that they can invent in their minds that goes beyond what the camera can do. So, it is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, Thank you. And is this something that you do for uh, clients? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, it is. Um, before I was really interested in doing and 
being a photographer and, and I'm not a commercial photographer. I want to really put that out there. I'm not a commercial photographer <laughs> and I, I do sell my photography to, um, to the, re to the, um, editorial community and advertising and corporate as well as the fine art community. But I'm not a commercial photographer doing weddings or doing food or doing any of those genres that commercial photographers have to focus on in order to market themselves correctly and make a living. Um, I kind of put my living together between um, photography, um, print sales. Um, I at one time was uh, had a lot of stock material selling. Yeah. And um, but my photo illustrations were where it all started. I was a graphic designer by choice, um, pretty much self-taught as, as I am with photography and an illustrator for most of my life. And so what happened is um, photo illustration just kind of merged my love for typography, graphic design, illustration, and then photography. And it was really uh, one of the people I was working side by side with at Time Warner his name is Richard Tushman. He's look him up. He's an amazing, amazing artist. Use, uses a camera, but he's an amazing artist as well. And he turned me on to the idea of doing photo composites, um, probably just because I was seeing his work. He, we didn't actually have a talk about it. Um, yeah. But but being around him, what happened is HBO got some of the earliest Macs and scanners, and so we were just tasked with trying to play with these and see what we could come up with. And Richard wasted no time scanning things and merging them together and creating these beautiful composites. And I just said, that's what I want to do. And um, <clears throat> so this was before layers, even you can imagine. Yeah. Commitment. <laughs> it was like working with watercolor. You know, you put it down there, it's down mm -hmm. there. You dropped a layer. It wasn't a layer. It was just, you were pasting something into something else, but it was the place where I learned and I'm very self-taught with all software and uh, with most machines as well. So I just played with it until I, mastered it and then i started taking advertising jobs uh, in new york city uh, especially medical advertising where i could exercise my skills and get paid well for it um and that was it i never looked back um and of course as as the adobe products have have evolved so has the computer and the speed at which you can compute these big files and um at this point i can work in real time where back at then i had to watch the progress bar and just kind of yeah, I was sitting on the edge of my seat going, come on, I want to do the next thing. I want to do the next thing. And anyone who's done Photoshop knows what that was like. But now it's all fluid. It's all it's all stream of consciousness for me. I start out with a sketch, and then I, I realize the different parts. I have a shot list. And I put things together um, with very simple equipment. Um, I've even used a Holga to make my, my input images and then scan them. Nice. And Holga being a toy plastic camera that some people – fell in love with as well. Holga has its own amazing fan base. It That's, does. It, does. it is a great medium format uh, starter tool if you're looking to <laughs> yep. getting into that. And uh, True. yeah, I, I have nothing but respect for the people that could do some great photography mm -hmm. with uh, nothing but plastic. It's uh, right. Props to them. That's they are the hardcore Fujifilm photographers before there was the Fujifilm X community. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, and the GFX is a, is a wonderful tool. I don't have one yet, but I will. And I'm um, very much looking forward to that because I have some projects in mind that really will go beyond the capabilities of my APS sensor in terms of file size and uh, resolution and, and tonal rendition. So I have a few friends with um, GFX cameras and 
seeing their work and seeing how they can um, not only make wonderful images using the technology in that camera, but also be able to crop without losing you know, valuable amounts of data. Um, that's very exciting to me. So very much looking forward to that. Um, but for now, I'm, I'm loving the APS. I have lots of students who say, well, how can you shoot with that after shooting with full frame? And you know what? I've never looked back. It's about the quality of the image, yes. not, not how many pixels you've shot or how large the frame is or the sensor that it's going on to. It's about the quality of the image. And Fujifilm really has invented some incredible technology. And uh, that's, why we, that's why I love it. I, yeah, the, the, just the, the color science mm-hmm. alone mm-hmm. was enough to make me switch. Um, the, the, the dials and everything that's just, <laughs> uh, well, granted it looks great. Um, and that's what originally sold me on yep. wanting to give it a try that, 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 uh, sirens lure, uh, lure, um, <laughs> uh, just realizing that it's all functional and it's all, uh, you know, it allows you to focus on the moment more and more. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Star Wars. Star Wars, every, when you look at their technology, it's all uh, f- switches and knobs and, you know, it gives it a retro appearance. But in the end, everything has to be uh functional well in their universe um, yeah, yeah. It, it's all about uh you know making it easy making it making it uh, easy intuitive that's the word i use yeah the, these cameras are more intuitive than many because you don't get buried in menus looking for settings you've got most of the things at your fingertips you can program almost every button on a fujifilm camera to do different things that you want it to do as well as the the front and rear um, finger and thumb tip dials, um, those function dials are incredibly underutilized by many people I know who own Fujifilm cameras, but I've loaned them out. I, I do, uh, uh, one of my favorite workshops is the art of travel and street photography. And in that workshop, I've often brought my, my, my Fujifilm gear and loaned it out. And I, I gotta say that I'd say probably over, over 75 to 85 to 90 students of mine have purchased Fujifilm gear after, after trying it out in my workshops or just hearing me gush about it when they <laughs> allow me to do it. Um, but you know, it's every year I teach at the university of Washington and every year more and more of the class members come in owning uh, Fujifilm um, products. So I'm, I'm happy about that because I can speak their language and turn them onto things that the camera can do that very few people realize, including the double exposure or multiple exposure features. I love them. Um, I, I think I made one of my favorite photographs in India using that, that tool. The multiple exposure. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if one was to go on my website and look at my, um, my travel section and you'll see something about traveling in Rajasthan. Um, one of the end, one of the earlier pictures in that series is a multiple exposure of the streets of India and what it feels like to be in traffic there, which anyone who's listening, who's been to India knows what I'm talking about. When I say <laughs> the multiple, the multiple layers of information hitting you in sensory overload that happens in traffic in some of the foreign countries. And um, so the double exposure, let me record that, that chaos and that color and that energy. Yeah, I would say, yeah, that that the the traffic there definitely beats something that's uh, over storage drive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if any of your listeners want to work with me um, 
at the Art of Travel and Street Photography workshops. Um, I will have some up on my website very shortly. Um, I've just been talking with the last few days with the main media workshops. We're going to do one over July 4th. Um, that gives us access to a lot of things going on in beautiful Maine. Um, one wouldn't necessarily say, oh, let's go to Maine and do street photography, but it's actually a mother load. <laughs> and oh, yeah. So where, whereabouts are you going to focus on? Um, well, you know, we're based in Rockport, Camden area of Maine, yep. which is, of course, the, the sweet coast of, of tourism there. It's just gorgeous. It's, it's a perfect New England coastal town. But we go to some interesting places, including some, some um, uh, studios. We go to a parade. We go to a place where a lot of uh, the industrial workers hang out. So we get access to a lot of interesting people in Mainers, I call them, who are not who are not the shiny polished um, uh, Mainers? They're the they're the down they're the down and dirty ones. <laughs> they're the ones with grease under their fingernails and, and a lot of stories to tell and gravelly voices. And um, my students just love interacting with them, and they love us because we we photograph them with their permission um, and we give them prints and and keep in touch with them during the year. So it's a really wonderful workshop that I love to teach, as well as. Um, uh, one that I do with Lightroom, um, deep dives into Lightroom as well as Photoshop. So, um, but you know, I, I just want to mention another workshop. I'm, I'm trying not to overplug, but um, there's a place called the Palouse region of Washington. It's the Washington yep. Idaho border, and it's well known for beautiful, breathtaking, undulating landscapes of agricultural properties. And I approach it a little differently than the many photographers who lead workshops there because almost every photograph you see of the Palouse is in color, except maybe some of the winter scenes. Yeah. But I shoot, of course, the way I shoot with black and white and color at the same time. But also we work with more of a storytelling philosophy of using black and white to signify the past as well as toned black and white. And so yep. I, I love platinum and selenium tone prints. So I teach about how to emulate those tonalities with digital. Um, but we have access to, farmers and uh, historical societies and places that bring a lot more of a historical story to the body of work that students turn out. And um, I've been doing that for a number of years. So that's a super favorite one comes up in June and then again in late July. Um, and then why do you tell the world where they could find uh, your website just so they can sure. follow along with the images as well as get more information? Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, well, do we have show notes that we can do on a website as well? Oh, it'll definitely be in the okay, show notes. Great. It's just my name, davidjulian.com. That's my website. Um, I also have a blog site. That's where my workshops are hosted. But you can get to them from the menu on my regular website as well. Yep. And do you have an Instagram? I do. I have an Instagram. It's at davidjulianphotography. Um, I'm on Facebook with my name. You know, there's two David Julians who are into photography and we're both connected on Facebook. So it confuses the heck out of my family. <laughs> when we both comment on things and they're like, well, which David's commenting now? And uh, it's just an interesting thing that happened one day. I saw him on Instagram and connected with him. Does he use a uh, Fujifilm or? Well, um, I don't think so. Oh, well, so. that's something we'll have to change. Well, uh, either that or maybe it's a good thing that we have at least one thing. Differently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it, you know, I don't, I don't use social media quite as well as I should in terms of the amount of time I post and the amount of followers I've gained. That's never mattered to me as much as just putting out quality work and talking about it. Yeah. I think that just posting a picture and then 
looking back a day later and saying, let's see how many likes I have feels to me like hollow. It feels, it feels like that's not what I want in social media. I want interaction, storytelling. So I love it when people post an image and then tell you a little bit about how it came about or their story, something that engages the curiosity of the viewer. Yes. So that's a big thing that I talk about to my students, most of whom are um, a lot younger and they're very much into the social media thing. But I try to encourage them to take it to a higher level and upgrade the experience by putting something out there that's not just look what I just shot, but look what I shot and here's how I felt about it or here's what turned me on. And, um, you know, Burning Man was an amazing experience to photograph in with my uh, X-T1. Um, not the best idea <laughs> to take a camera you really care about to Burning Man, but it was a wonderful adventure. Um, and I ended up on the media team because they loved my work. And it's an interesting place. It's not for everyone, that's for sure. It's very harsh on your psyche and your body um, because it's physically difficult to be there sometimes because of the environmental conditions. It's yes. also not easy to shoot there um, without you know, making some mistakes and learning from them about uh, lens changing and things like that. But I wrote an article about it on my blog about how to photograph at Burning Man. And I think that's got something like 600,000 reads. It's an in insane number, higher than anything I've ever published anywhere. Um, but that's kind of- and Those photos are spectacular. Thank you. That's actually some of my very favorite work, that India and Cuba. And soon, some other places I'm going to be going to, um, including Vietnam and back to India to Varanasi. But the only thing is, I can't actually put any of my Burning Man work up on the Fujifilm uh, creators page or anything corporate, because um, uh, there are laws at Burning Man about associating the photography you do with anything commercial or branding. So, oh, interesting. That's, that's unfortunately, yeah, I'll never be able to show that work. Um, under the uh, uh, Fujifilm umbrella, but um, it's certainly easy to find it on my website. Yeah. Um, some of my favorite photos of yours, uh, this is something that I've been doing uh, recently, is uh, shooting in fog. Oh, uh, you're speaking my language, man. I <laughs> love fog. I love it. And uh, last year, uh, 2021 was uh, any, anytime there was fog, I would, <laughs> yeah. uh, I would go about doing uh, some photography. In fact, uh, my, my family and I, we were, this was right after one of the hurricanes mm -hmm. uh, that, that hit New England. Um, we, in my neck of the woods, like north of Boston, didn't, didn't get affected by it. We just mm -hmm. got some rain. But what happened was um, we just got inundated with a ton of fog that was coming uh -huh. in from uh, the, the New Hampshire area. And, uh, and so we were planning on doing uh, just my, my family and I were going for mm -hmm. uh, lunch in Newburyport. And uh, in, instead I took them to uh, um, Perkins Cove in Maine. <laughs> oh, I love Perkins Cove. <laughs> It was uh, quite the detour. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they understand. They understand the passion. Um, fog is my very, very favorite 
um, environment to shoot in next to the dust at Burning Man. Yeah. Uh, fog came first. You know, I've experienced fog growing up in the East Coast uh, near where you live and going to uh, the coast in Cape Cod and just that fall fog that we get because of the yep. moisture inversion, which we get a lot of that in Seattle too at that time of year. But there's nothing that turns me on as much. And I swear that my first love of fog really happened because of Hitchcock and, and some of the brilliant movies that were shot in those conditions. Um, that noir look with the fog that shrouds tonal values and gives you that disappearing uh, layers of color and tone. It's amazing. Um, that's that's a super turn on for me visually, and I can feel my heart racing whenever I'm in the fog because I know it's I know I'm going to come back with stuff I love. Um, and you know, like many people, I'm behind on my editing because sometimes you go away and you <laughs> shoot a couple thousand images. I try to shoot almost like I have film. Um, I mean, when I would go on my three, four, five week trips before digital, I would still shoot about a thousand images or close to it, 800 to a thousand. And that's a lot of film, a lot. That's cases of film. Um, but there were only a few good ones per roll. And nowadays it's like, you know, get a little bit better hits because of focus quality and, and a little bit more control in many ways. But, um, I do tend to shoot very conservatively, um, in terms of numbers of frames per location or per subject. Yeah. Um, Mainly because as, as much as I love the art of post-processing, it's a time suck. (laughs) Oh, totally. And, I get I go into the rabbit hole really quickly. I see an image and I just want to bring it to its best possible fruition, and then I look at oh, there's another 800 I have to go through. <laughs> so, you know, my fingers on the X key on Lightroom as I go through, and I just delete, 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 or you know, mark for rejection and um, delete. Uh, it's it's kind of a funny way of doing it. I, I sometimes actually select all of them, hit the X key. They all get rejected, and then I go through and hit the U key to undo the X on just the ones I want. And that's like the speediest way that I've um, processed some shoots. Yeah, I've, I, that, that, that is something that I've been tinkering with because with my own work, um, especially with wedding photography, it's it, trying to find the best way to quicken the culling is mm-hmm. – uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's always been a work in progress for me. Um, I, I've tried the AI software, and it's mm-hmm. like, uh, do I want another monthly fee? And no, yeah, yeah, it's keep it simple. That's my goal. Totally. In fact, when I'm out shooting on the street and and with with my students or not, keeping it simple is the way to go. Of course, most students show up with way more gear than they need for a street workshop, but because we're shooting street and travel, and I do see them as different, um, they overlap quite a bit, of course, but there are some different parameters that I instruct around the different uh, around those two genres being different and agility and lightweight and simplicity is what you need for street. You know, one camera I'm actually, I can say this truthfully. I am jealous of Valerie Jardin because she's made her whole photographic career that we know as Fujifilm users using nothing but the X 100 series cameras. And I think that's just the most Zen beautiful thing. And I wish I could do that, but I'm, I'm in love with too many other focal lengths and, and techniques that, uh, that I need to make choices from. So, um, but for street, there's nothing like simplicity, one lens, or maybe two focal lengths, um, keeping it simple. Totally. 
Um, yeah, she, her her work is just amazing. Just her that, that it, honing that eye to to find like the coolest things out in <laughs> just everyday life is such an uh, like amazing talent to to have. She is. She's she's a talented person and a wonderful a wonderful friend as well. Um, and we became acquainted through hit the streets, but also, uh, I invited her to come to Cuba. So she joined us at the end of one of my workshops and then we spent some time together shooting and it was just fun to see how she, how she sees and how we see very differently and what we were attracted to, even though we were walking together. Um, and that's always interesting. And I, I think it might've been, it might've been Brian Manier who was on your show and he was talking about how, um, I hope it was him that I'm quoting, but how the same person, um, uh, two people can be in the same place, but see completely different. Oh, you know, it was Bobby. Um, she said she and Lee can be back to back in one location or side by side and still shoot completely different bodies of yes. work. And, and that's the beauty of it. So it's nice to work with a photographer um, who, who you can relate to. And then just to see at the end when you're culling images, like what, what did you see and what did I see? And so often my students especially some of the female students who seem to have an easier time photographing children um, and, and females that we meet. Uh, I think it's because there's a little less intimidation or maybe less perception of, of anything going on. And um, uh, I'm so, um, I always admire their work and say, wow, I, I didn't get that response from that person. You know, I had a different interaction. Yeah. And yeah, and I mean, but that's that's part of the the photographic experience. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when I was making my transition from Canon to Fujifilm, uh, I would I would be using the five D, uh, whatever mark yeah. that that was. I, I think I made it to the Mark Three, um, and at the same time, I had the Fujifilm XE2 hmm. uh, with the 35 on it. I am shooting the same scene with <laughs> me personally. And it looks like two different photographers, uh, depending on which uh, photo you're looking at from the sure. 5D or from the XE. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, it's, it's neat. Um, I used to carry a little pocket camera with me, but now my phone is, is the, one of the better cameras, right? And uh, so I'm constantly shooting with two different focal lengths because they see differently. I love, I, I'm a wide angle addict. I probably should go to a program for people who are wide angle addicts, but I haven't yet found one. They do. It's your workshop. It, it, yeah, <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, all of the knees, all of my left knees on all of my pants are worn because I drop to my knees a lot to get a different angle, especially with the wide angle. So a lot of the portraits I made at Burning Man were made with the 16, which is not a portrait lens, but I wanted that grand landscape to show behind them. And I like to get lower than my subjects um, to give them a little bit more of a towering uh, point of view in the photograph. Yeah. And I did that when I photographed people in India, um, as well as using a tiny pop flash that just puts a little catch light in the eye and the shadow, maybe in the shadow of a, of a hat brim, I can get that catch light to show back up. And so lots of little tricks and I know I'm zigzagging all over the place and rabbit holing, but that's kind of the way these conversations go. But, um, no, I love it. In, in fact, right. 
I think w- your love for the the smaller camera. Have you tried the the Fujifilm X seventy? Oh yeah, the legend. <laughs> I have. I had one, and I finally um, sold it just because it had been sitting on the shelf a little bit too much since I had the X one hundred F. Oh my god! Um, I wish I interviewed you so much sooner. But it's a beautiful little <laughs> camera. Oh wow! Okay. I would. Well, yeah, I do. Too. I do too. <laughs> um, but yeah, I sold it. You know, honestly, I sold it for very little money because it. It had a, it had kind of a slightly, slightly Just janky nice. uh, on-off switch on it. Um, Still would have bought it. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. I get, are they hard to find? They are. Uh, it, they, well, no, they're not hard to find. They're just hard to find In- at a reasonable shape. price. Oh, um, really? They, yeah, you, um, <laughs> you. Uh, Whatever you sold it for, you could have made more. It's kind of you know, prior to <laughs> I the, <hear> that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, prior to uh, the the supply chain issues, those things were already going oh. for just like like they would not depreciate in value. Like you, how much? What are you talking here? How how much did you buy it for? Did I buy it for? Yeah, I bought it for three hundred dollars. Three hundred dollars. So you could have sold it for easily for six hundred. Are you kidding me? Nah, I'm, I'm, oh, not, I'm not okay. joking. We'll have to talk about this offline because otherwise I'm going to start swearing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you know, back to back to photography. Um, you know, I can talk gear like anybody, but um, back to photography. I, I think that the thing that's important, whether you own Fujifilm gear or you own anything, is to is to master the gear you have and be in be in the moment with it. You know, try really hard not to be sucked into chimping your photographs while you're out shooting because that takes you out of the creative moment and you have to catch back up with it when you start shooting again. Yeah. There's a certain rhythm that happens when you're on the move and you're in sync with your surroundings and you sort of know where you are, but you also are open to the possibility that you don't, which is a lot of fun. Um, But really, really just staying in the moment and keeping your senses open and keeping your intuition sharp that is the way, um, and that's what I that's what I teach to my students is how do you do this? How do you how do you know what's going to happen next? How do you know how do you know to be ready for what's coming up next? It's it's partly a mindset, it's partly a tuning of your senses, and it's partly the way you set your camera. So I'm glad we're getting into this because this oh, is the, the the unique side to your uh, workshops. It's uh, you 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 come for the photography, but you you leave with uh, mm-hmm. with. Uh, a new outlook, uh, and that is something that I've uh, that, that I love hearing about uh, through you know the, the reviews you have and everything, and um, just everybody is having such an amazing time and, and learning. You know, we come in for a landscape, but you know, mm-hmm. I, I also learned this. Um, mm-hmm. the, the 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 that mindset. It, where where did you? Uh, how how did that come to like? How, how did you be, get so in tune with that? Um, that to find that? Uh, the, oh God, I can't even ask the question properly. <laughs> That's okay. I I know know going. It, it's such an. <laughs> the, the problem is that what I'm trying to ask is is a very intuitive question uh, because what you're ultimately looking for. Or, or trying to get to is a certain feeling, a certain certain placement mm-hmm. in, in how how you go about photography, and taking that experience and bringing it out to other aspects of your own personal life. Um, 
so it's it's kind of like you know the the Zen thing where it's like you know it it, it transcends words. Mm-hmm. So um, so yeah, go ahead and explain that. Right. Let me, help you out. <laughs> let, me help, let me get you off the hook by telling you what it is you want to hear. Um, <laughs> the is that um, I grew up. I grew up pretty sen- – and I'm a sensitive – I was a sensitive kid. I was yeah. very, very in tune with my surroundings, maybe to the point where I, I could be annoying because lights were too bright, sounds were too loud, movement was too fast. I was just one of these kids that was sort of wired that way, pretty ADD as well. And um, you know, no one really understood it back then when I grew up in the mid-50s. And so I just sort of had to tuck in and say, this is – what I am. And I became very interested in drawing and I was very artistic at a young age. And so I had this, my own little world. But one of the things that I did quite a bit because I was sort of a hyperactive kid was I went hiking alone all the time in the woods, even in the suburbs of Boston, which are not very rural, but you can find some pretty, pretty natural places. Yeah. And in that I became super tuned into nature and the rhythm of nature. And I could spend all afternoon dissecting a rotting log and just seeing what was in it and looking at the light and the way the light played toward the end of the afternoon. So I was already tuned to all of these details growing up. And I think that what I learned as an adult was to, was to listen really carefully to my responses to things and to use that as a guide to what to photograph. And it sounds, it sounds a little bit woo woo, but um, it's not. Everyone has this ability. Um, I've taught people who come from a deep engineering and software design background who don't consider themselves um, intuitive, sensitive, or in touch. And they've left the workshop saying, oh my God, I hear different. I hear differently now. I see differently. I, I look at light differently. And I feel like I'm more in touch with what I want to photograph. And therefore, I can put more of myself into my photographs. And there's no better, there's no better reward than a person who makes work that they're proud of and that reflect who they are. Yes, absolutely. And it it is uh, a feeling that is just, you're on top of the world and Mm -hmm. it's creative flow. You know, we've all had it. We've all been there at the right light, at the right place. And you get that little, you, you do feel it. You feel your heart racing a little bit. You feel yourself folded into a piece of time, time stops. And you're just looking at the light through your viewfinder or you're searching for the next shot if you're up on Steptoe Butte and the Palouse, which has, you know, 23 trillion possible shots, uh, 360 <laughs> degree over miles and miles. And you're in flow and it's that, moment where you're in flow that you are connected to the world and you are connected to the universe of yourself and you are connected to the light and the move the movement and the color or the people and that is the place you want to be as often as possible as a creative person so i just try to facilitate that experience with my students or participants so that they can get there more easily and to tie it back to the the Fujifilm experience, mm-hmm. because everything is knobs and dials, mm-hmm. you know, once you enter that state, you know, you're just going with it and, and, you know, you know, 
click, click mm-hmm. here, click, click there, and you know, make uh, minor adjustments. And you're you've never left that flow state. Yes, that's exactly right, Mark. Exactly right. The fewer things that get in between you and that flow, the better you're going to work. Yep. Um, and because I'm not a commercial photographer and I don't have assistants running around or art directors or models and a lot of that going on, I mean, I have worked in that genre. I've, I've even shot a few weddings and it was living hell for me, but I appreciate people <laughs> who can do it. Um, I, I'm, I'm a person who likes to really focus and um, I, need, I need to have that focus. So when I photograph during my workshops to demonstrate or even because everyone's out shooting, um, I do, I do have to sort of tune in um, maybe a little bit more than some people in order to isolate the distractions. But I get in the flow and I can't even hear if someone's calling my name. <laughs> so yep. I have to be careful. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not the person who jumps out into traffic and does that, but I, I have taken risks. And I think that um, physical risks are one thing, but creative risks are, are essential, essential ways of growing. Yes. No, you can't, you'll, you'll never interview anybody who says that's not true. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it, it's, it's not hyperbole. It's not, it's not bull. It's the real thing. Um, so if anything happens tonight, or I should say tonight, it's tonight, your time and my time, but um, to your listeners, when this airs, uh, if you can do yourself any favors at all in photography, it's to work with someone who can teach you these skills or, or to just try them yourself and see where it goes. Um, spend more time listening to yourself. And um, that's not that hard to do. It's not that hard to do. You just have to tune in. Tune into the smaller voice. And a lot of the female students, I don't want to get you know, gender specific, but many of the females um, in my classes are a little bit more aware of that voice and that intuition because that's how that's how they are physiologically and psychologically. And I think it's the men who um, maybe have a little bit harder time getting to that place. Um, so that may be a generalization, but it's actually been my, my real experience. Um, yeah. Everyone's personal experiences. Yeah. 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 But for um, me, it's a no brainer. Um, sometimes, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm almost feeling too much and I have to tune that down a little bit. Especially if I'm in a cathedral, like I was in Portugal that first time with the Fuji S2, Fujifilm S2. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so overwhelming for me to be surrounded by that much beauty and also that intensity of, of religion, all this iconography. Um, yes. And, you know, I grew up in a family that had a Christmas tree and a menorah. So um, I sort of had both influences, although my family is Jewish. Um, I didn't grow up in the church. So for me to go into these monstrous cathedrals and see the way they were adorned and see and feel the power was a very, a very uh, tactile and emotional experience, um, which I brought home in, in the way of photography. And then in composites that I made about that. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, the, I, I grew up, um, Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. my, my parents are, are, are very, uh, very, very Catholic. And it's, it's, um, so see, I, I could relate to the, the, the immensity of the mm-hmm. yep. cathedrals. Um, yeah, power. Although it is, it is, it is made to make you look, uh, and feel demi- uh, diminutive. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's just some of the cathedrals around yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, I, I haven't had the experience of uh, like, like like the, <laughs> the what I call the hardcore Catholics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, I, th- I think just everyone has to approach it their way. But I also believe there's something I also wanted to mention before, but I didn't have a chance to. So if you don't mind, I'll kind of zigzag over to it for a minute. Yeah. Um, I feel that it's very important for people to be able to post-process their photographs well enough for them to be truly reveal what you felt when you photographed them or what you want to say with them. Um, sometimes I'm thinking, okay, I know how I'm going to process this shot because I'm not seeing it right now. I can record it, but I'm not getting what I want straight out of the camera. I'm going to have to do some things. And then there are people you know, like Valerie, for instance, who just doesn't want to get involved in any of that. And as a result, she's very prolific and doesn't waste time uh, you know, perfecting things. And I think that's a very valuable lesson as well as it's different for different people. Um, yes. I'm the person who wants to labor over something and then print it and then fix it again and then reprint it and become, oh my God, that's so much better now. And I feel better about the photograph and it truly does reveal what I wanted it to reveal or communicate what I wanted it to communicate. It always, I mean, I guess it all depends on what you're uh, looking to photograph. Uh, like w- with, I find that with my, uh, my wedding photography work, it's more. It, it's always a struggle to to stop shooting as much. It's so easy to uh, mm-hmm. to, to over <laughs> overshoot, mm-hmm. um, and you know you're you're toning trying to tone it back. But with, with wedding photography, it's always a focus on getting it right in camera so that I don't have to of spend as much time in, in post-production. But to your point, when you're doing something else, like we, when you're when you're trying to compose a, a, a nice art piece, that, that feeling of getting it right in camera is, is still prevalent. It's very important. Always try to do the best you can in camera and, and- – most of the time, that's all it needs. Um, you know, the raw files have to be um, processed because they're raw. They don't have yeah. – the camera didn't impose its knowledge and technology in there. But one of the reasons I love the Fujifilm JPEGs is because they are beautifully processed by the by the camera, and the simulations are wonderful. And because I come – or we come from the film era – um, the fact that I can dial back into some of those looks that I loved is is huge. Um, in that way, I'm not spending the time in post trying to get them. I think that's but that a, option is always there, and it's I always see. There. Yeah, Lee and I have talked about that as well. It's like one of those things we love it. Um, so it's all good. There's lots of ways of producing art with a camera, and um, I've done it where the camera is just simply the recording device for some of the elements in my composites, some of the stories that I tell. Um, I use photographs as the background in physical assemblages that I build. Um, Some people would call them shadow boxes, but that's not what they are. Um, They're three-dimensional stories. Yes. And then, of course, I'm Using photograph, I'm using cameras to do photojournalistic work, like my piece taken of taken from the heart. That's a body of work that's in the projects section of my website, and that's straight, straight photographs, unadorned, unaltered, um, right off the right off the uh, the film. Those were done with a film six by seven camera, um, and then oh, scanned. But yeah, that that was a project. That was a post Katrina. Um, 
project I did after the Hurricane Katrina, um, after that event and that, that disaster. And so that whole body of work is just reportage of what I saw there, but it's about a certain edge of what I saw there. It's, it's not yes. the grand landscape. It's the intimate details that, of things that people lost. And I, I would love to spend more time, but we're, we're, we're kind of at oh, time right okay. now, <laughs> but, um, but uh, my God, I, I, we need to bring you back onto the show uh, just to talk about different uh, projects and, and go into uh, j- just that, go into detail, like what, what was the, mm-hmm. you know, wh- why did you do the project, how it was accomplished? And it, it, I mean, we could keep going and going, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, but thank you. Let's for- save it for part two. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. I love to, I'd love to come back, Mark. It's been, it's been awesome to meet you and talk with you and have a chance to, um, to just sort of roll back into my own little past and, and say, okay, what's relevant and what can we talk about? So I'd love to do that again with you. And I just might have to uh, uh, go into one of these uh, main workshops because that's something that Please. would be really cool. Yeah. Drive right up. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and I hope to see you back next week. I wanted to also mention one more time that this is brought to you by Fuji Love Magazine. For the latest and greatest in all things Fujifilm X-Series and GFX, head on over to fujilove.com. Subscribe today. And my name is Mark Sadowski. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter. Mostly Instagram, though. I'm at Mark Sadowski. That's Mark with a C. And you can also check out my other podcast, X-Mark. It's a Fujifilm-esque kind of show, where it's more spice of life and pretty infrequent. But if you want more of my voice... That's the place to check it out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon.